Do you have an idea for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. Please listen carefully. What is communication? The act of taking a thought from my head and putting it into your essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. Usually what I have in my head to the outside world draws us out of ourselves, draws us into that relationship, you know, builds up our families. Without it, we'd be lost. I think it's the ability to share your innermost feelings and thoughts with others. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information. Welcome to Speech Science Episode 74. Proud members of the Exceptional Podcast Network. Check out our website and our friends over at XBN. That is speechsciencepodcast.com or go to podcast.speechsciencepodcast.com, which takes you over to our Podbean and also check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash mwhproduction or get a hold of us, 614-681-1798. And our email is speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Episode 74, we're almost three quarters of a century old. I'm your host, Matt Hot, joined as always, on the other side of the Ohio-Pennsylvania border, Michael McLeod. How's it going, buddy? I am great. How are you out there this week? I'm doing good. Got a nice, uh, fairly light week ahead. Uh, a lot of the schools are on break this week. Uh, so I think a lot of families are going to be on vacation for their spring break. So shouldn't be as busy as last week. Last week, I was working into the late evenings, uh, seeing some of the, uh, the older clients that I work with. Uh, but yeah, it should be a pretty uh, pretty light week. That is awesome. Mm-hmm. And the only person who's a bigger Buckeye fan than I am on this show, Michelle Wintering. Hi, Matt. I really just want to know how my new mic sounds. You have a I'm new microphone. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> uh, I love how we, you know, when we first started, we didn't want anyone to know about any of our technical difficulties and now we're just like uh yeah these things happen yeah this is what happens so you get the real so besides the new microphone how has the week been with you and baby speech science and baby speech science's daddy we're we're doing well in kentucky and um i am childproofing my house matt so send down your toddlers yeah that is the worst (laughs) part uh, we had some people over today and we had to make sure that we picked up everything that little kids could eat because my kids are now out of the, I'm going to eat a random Lego toy, but our friends' kids were not. <laughs> yeah. So we're getting baby gates and outlet covers cause he is crawling all over the place. And we've been trying to set up our office and organize papers that accumulate over the years. You just have these collections of boxes of papers that should be purged. And uh, he was enjoying crawling through all of them. (laughs) I will say this, a helpful hint of a dad who has flipped himself over multiple baby gates 
take the half second, make sure the gate is open before trying to carry your, your momentum through it. I can't tell you how many times I've thought I've clipped the gate to, to open it and it did not. And I ended up crashing through the gate like Wreck-It Ralph going through a wall. You took the gate with you? <laughs> yeah, and the wall and the chunk and the paint. Oh, no. How was the drywall? <laughs> uh, so we haven't fixed any of that yet until we're done with baby gates because my wife is smarter than I am and she assumes that I'm going to break through the walls again, Kool-Aid style, every day. Nice. Have any of you ever walked through a screen door? On purpose or on accident? No, on accident. I've done that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have. Yeah, we've had that happen multiple times. I have not gone through a screen door, I don't think. <laughs> I, don't I mean, know. it's entertaining to watch when you see it happen. That's fair enough. For me, I think this week I had my, I talk, mentioned it last week, we had to do the uh, Big Brothers, Little Brothers program for the St. Xavier High School bowling team. Can we just acknowledge <laughs> that your sons are dancing in the background? Right I was going to ignore my kids dancing in the background because... Why are we not on Facebook Live I, right now? I don't want to be on Facebook Live for this. We absolutely need to be. Set it up right now. Uh, I would if I could, but I can't, so I won't. So I'm having flashbacks to who was that um, gentleman interviewed internationally whose kids. That's um, exactly what I was thinking. The That's interview. Exactly, that was the same exact dance moves. The yep. on the news and yes. the mom is in the background like dragging yeah, the kids the out. Kid. The, the exactly. kid came in dancing just like that. It was hilarious. That is funny until they're your kids, then it's not funny. <laughs> no, it's funny. Oh, it's still it's, it's still funny. funny. Oh, I'll take it. These would be the times I look back and go, Oh, I miss those days. Now my kids don't want to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's get it going. On today we're gonna talk about what do ASHA certified SLP to population ratios mean to you, and maybe if you're a CF looking for a new job. Also, the Professional Certification Coalition and ASHA has joined forces. We'll talk about what that means, but we'll start off with uh, an article out of the ASHA Journal, or I'm sorry, the ASHA Leader. Uh, earlier school entry could raise likelihood of ADHD uh, diagnosis. Uh, I thought this was kind of interesting that it, it kind of confirms what we see in the schools where some of our younger kids may not have some of the soft skills needed to, to focus in schools and automatically someone says, oh, they must have ADHD. Well, I think this is a very interesting article. You know, they the fact that they instantly tie it to an ADHD diagnosis, I think that's something that, you know, it's not, may not necessarily be ADHD at this point, especially at this incredibly young age. But uh, this article makes some very good points in terms of overall development. And basically it says as, a ch as children gr grow older, Small differences in age equalize and dissipate over time, but behaviorally speaking, the difference between a six and seven-year-old can be quite pronounced. And this is incredibly, incredibly true, and this is honestly something I've been a major proponent for for quite some time now with a lot of the families I work with, with some of the younger kids, uh, so, some of the EI families I work with, you know, in that three to five range, and then it's time for them to enter kindergarten. I've always been a big proponent for an extra year of preschool. Get that extra year in of some unstructured play and learning through experience and wait of you know wait an extra year for them to enter the the public school system. I think uh, I, 
I think that's a, such a major point of development. And here within this article, it's tied to an ADHD diagnosis, which clearly is that frontal lobe of the, of the brain, which a lot of the research is showing that it that area grows through cause and effect, uh, trial by error, learning learning through experience type of experiences like like you would get in preschool, interacting with mm-hmm. peers, having that time. And that's really what grows that frontal lobe of the brain. So is it true ADHD diagnosis? Is it more of a uh, of an executive dysfunction? Is it more of a lack of overall emotional secure uh, uh, emotional maturity? Um, it's you know that's that that's more of an individual individualistic basis of what the diagnosis is. But uh, but yeah, I I've always been a major proponent for an extra year of preschool, and this article kind of touches on that. I'm. Hey, I'm. I kind of want to pick your brain. When you say one more year of preschool, are you talking about those kids that the borderline age, just like the article where they said the August to September cutoff? And I know different states. Some states have different cutoffs that September or October, so you have even younger kids uh, going into those grades. Uh, I'm pretty much talking about about all of them. I'm pr- pretty much talking about all the ones that are finishing up their last year of preschool, and the following year they'll be they'll leave that preschool and go into their into the school system into the true school system out of early intervention ages 3 to 5 and then once they are eligible to enter kindergarten parents choose to opt out and do an extra year of preschool i've always been a big proponent so, for that so you're having kids in kindergarten starting more likely when they're 6 right mhm well that's what we're doing with our oldest our oldest he turned 6 Oh, here in about 31, 32 days. And he, right now he's five. We started him in preschool halfway through the school year last year because I'm a terrible parent who said, oh, no, he doesn't need preschool for social skills. He'll be fine. He needed preschool for social skills. And (laughs) uh, at the end of the year, the teacher said, hey, he'll be fine in kindergarten, but he may need to benefit from another year of preschool just for social skills, just to learn those sharing and attention and sitting quietly. And uh, I'll be honest, I didn't know how I felt about that. And looking back on how he was at the end of the school year last year to who he is this year, he looks closer now to being a kindergartner than he did last year. Now, my wife and I knew that doing that, he was either going to be always the oldest kid or one of the youngest kids in the in his grade and we, he's now going to be one of the oldest kids in his grade every time. But we feel like that's helping him at least that executive functioning skills to be in the uh, – at least be in the classroom that way. We've actually chatted about that a little bit because James was – my son James was born on the 4th of July, right? So hey. he will either be – he will either <laughs> be movie. on the – Hey. <laughs> um, he was either uh, – Looking ahead, he would either be on the older end or the younger end of his class, Mm -hmm. depending on if we wanted to keep him um, till that following year. But that's not even the kids who are September, October cutoff. Yeah, no, Michael's really benefited from it. My Michael, not Michael McLeod, but my Michael. Uh, He's really benefited (laughs) from it where, you know, at the end of last year, we couldn't motivate him to pick up a book. Like he could do it, but he couldn't really want to. 
and now he's able to read the story of the pout pout fish of course it's not really him reading it but he's memorized it and he understands each beat is a word and he's starting to pick up those skills uh, i went over to the cdc.gov website and here's the criteria for adhd uh, for inattention they need six or more symptoms in children ages uh six up to age 16 and here's some of them and this is where you were getting to it at mike uh they often fail to give close attention to details have trouble holding attention does not seem to listen does not follow through on instructions has trouble organizing avoids avoids dislikes or is reluctant to do tasks often loses things easily distracted and forgetful in daily activities Okay. That's a lot of executive functioning. So so those behaviors in upper elementary school, middle school, and high school are clearly very alarming. That's that's a big deal. Correct. But a a lot of what you described, that sounds like a a, four-year-old. That sounds like a four-year-old. That sounds like a preschool (laughs) student. There you have it. So is this a true ADHD diagnosis or is this a a child who needed an extra year Mm -hmm. of preschool? So, so that's ADHD inattention. I apologize, yeah. Mike, real quick. Hyperactivity, they need six or more symptoms uh, up from birth to age 16. And in hyperactivity and impulsivity, these are the things that they need six of. Uh, often fidgets with or taps hands, feet, or squirms in their seat. They leave their seat. Run about or climb. Unable to play or take part in leisure activities. Is often on the go. Quote, unquote, driven by a motor. Excessive talking blurts out an answer trouble waiting their turn and interrupts yeah and and these kids these days they're growing up with with more screen time more socialization through screen time less face-to-face less you know like going out there and and playing and interacting and you know the the pretty much the true play that we grew up with and that's what truly Mm -hmm. builds these skills so having being in preschool and being in in a in a well preschool that's that's run very well and gives these kids varied experiences and good social experiences and puts them and really fosters that that's that's crucial this is a crucial age for development it 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 doesn't really make sense to say that if a student stays an extra year of preschool then all of a sudden his ADHD is going to go away I think right. I, this article doesn't give that much information. It's actually quite short uh, in terms of when they were diagnosed or what happened, things like that. But overall, it's, uh, it's, it's really something. This is a major decision for parents because this could, this could really improve them f- throughout their entire educational career. This is something that could benefit them all throughout elementary and middle school, You know, kind Did of you- being around peers, being the older one, all of that. Did you guys read the original journal article from the New England Journal of Medicine? No. Um, So what they said was the results were the study population included 407,000 children that were born between 2007 and 2009, and they were followed through December 2015. Uh, The rates of diagnosis and treatment of ADHD are higher among children born in August than among children born in September in states with its September 1st cutoff. Uh, they were not observed for other month-to-month comparisons, nor were they observed in states with non-September cutoffs for starting kindergarten. All right, so it was about a six-year study. So, mm-hmm. and uh, did it did it say what is the percentage of the ones that continued to have ADHD? Uh, let's see, uh, eighty-five point one per ten thousand children. 
for the September 1st cutoff. Among those born in August, it was 63.6 per 10,000 children. And those in September, an absolute difference of 21.5 per 10,000 children. Holy cow. So basically, these are the, the ones mm -hmm. that continued to have it were the youngest ones. Yep. So there you have it. So that's exactly what it was. These, these are the youngest ones within their age group. And during that crucial time of brain development, they were put in a situation where they were consistently asked to do things that they were not development, developmentally ready to do, uh, as in sitting on a carpet, following multi-step directions, uh, in, inhibiting responses and organizing to a point they weren't ready to do. And they were probably getting consistent negative directives and constantly being told what they were doing was incorrect. And when you get that, that could linger. And you, you're constantly being told what you're doing is wrong. And you see your peers doing correct. And you simply are not ready to do that. So that's something that could continue across a lifespan is, is, is growing up and being told that you're not performing as well as your peers. And imagine how that looks in the therapy setting. If you get the older kid who you can get in preschool and tell them to sit down and they're building the crafts and they're doing the language game and they're playing, uh, Oh, what's the game? Shoots and ladders. Um, and then you get the younger kid who's just a little bit younger, a little bit less mature. Which kid are you going to say needs more of that sensory input? I mean, who's going to need more breaks? Who's going to get referred to the OT? I know at least when I did my year in preschool, I, I'm looking back on it. Now. I might have made major misinterpretations of kids just based off of the age. Well, and I think that that makes me think of how many times that I had kids that we would do half the session not in the therapy mm -hmm. room with those young kids. And in the clinic, we would go to the PT gym. And I know I'm a speech therapist, but we would be using the PT gym as part of our routine for speech therapy because that three-year-old, that four-year-old, that five-year-old needed that. And even though it was a 30-minute session or a 40-minute session, gosh, my my dream would be able to do private practice kind of like what Mike does, but do it out in an adventure type setting and not have to do it in the walls of the classroom. Well, that... Michael, you're living the dream. <laughs> yes, I, I share a space with a, uh, with a physical therapist. So within our clinic, we have uh, like the things on the ceiling so that we can have the swings, the platform swing. It's just a really fun, like, and I'm, I'm trained in a DIR floor time. So it's really following the child's lead, play therapy, focus on relationships. And that's really, it, it's been amazing in terms of language development for these age groups. And they're gaining, not only are they gaining language, but they're gaining executive skills through play and through through cause and effect thinking and cause and effect experiences, which is what these kids are getting with that extra year of preschool. Having that extra year, they're interacting with different peers, having different experiences every single day, being interacted uh, by with so many different people. And that's what's going to help them figure out how to organize and how to be resilient. That made me think, I'm going to send you all a link to an article. I just found it from the Atlantic from the fall. But um, it's been a topic of conversation with my family. My mom actually works in environmental education for the state of Ohio. Shout out to Project Learning Tree. Um, and I was asking her about, have therapists ever come to your trainings for this outdoor education 
incorporating the outdoors inside and taking kids outside more than in the walls of the classroom, right? And um, I feel like we can learn from that. <laughs> I don't know. There's more and more things popping up. And right now it's probably cost prohibitive for a lot of people, but preschools that are um, that are outdoor, that are not the standard sit in a desk, sit on a rug, have circle time preschools. And this it's an offshoot of what we're talking about, but I think it relates to that attention piece and the opportunity that kids have to learn through play. Well, we want to hear from you. Do your personal experiences uh, line up with this or is it a little bit different? Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com or email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com or call us or text us 614-681-1798. And where can they find us online? How about Instagram at speech or, sorry, underscore science? How yeah. about Instagram, right? Yes. Uh, speech underscore science and hashtag SS pod, speech science pod. We'd love to hear from and you. And I was just telling Matt how, how great our audience has been on Instagram. We're constantly getting mm-hmm. people messaging us and commenting, and we're really getting a great network of SLPs on there, just interacting with each other, meeting each other, commenting. It's been, it's been really great. We, have, we, we definitely have a great audience. We are like the the social hour after a long conference. That is what our Instagram page is turning into, right? I like it. Yeah. Oh, this next one is also another article on the ASHA leader. You could almost say this whole episode is the ASHA leader. Uh, but uh, ASHA joins the professional professional certification coalition, and the PCC is a national group that addresses state level legislation efforts that seek to undermine recognition of certifications developed or offered by private certification organizations uh, similar to uh, ASHA. So are you guys familiar with the occupational licensure? Yes. Michelle? No. Uh, Basically, it's... um, Mike, tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but it's basically a not a you could become a speech pathologist without necessarily be being through all the steps of speech pathology. Correct. Yes, you can. Yeah. Um, some states right now that are going through this and I just pulled this up and I've lost it. Where did it go? Oh, uh, occupational licensure right now is happening in Indiana, Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Utah, and West Virginia. And some of them are trying to make it so that professionals cannot identify themselves as holding a triple C SLP or the triple C audiology. uh, So as not to differ themselves from the occupational licensure. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So there's people out there that do that. Well, that's what they're trying to do. So sample bills in Nebraska, uh, Oklahoma, Missouri, and Tennessee will have linked. But they're basically saying that they're, well, what these occupational licensure bills are doing are trying to make it so that more people get into the field to help, but maybe not necessarily the way that we would want them to. Yeah, I would definitely say it's very important for all SLPs out there to do it really the same as everybody else. I think going to grad school, getting the masters, joining ASHA, doing your clinical fellowship, getting your C's. I think that's really, I I would say that should be absolutely mandatory for, for all jobs. 
I wasn't. I wasn't aware of this. Yeah. I'm looking at the article. Neither was I. I've I've seen some people post on Facebook like uh, saying they they stopped paying their dues, they got rid of their C's, but they still practice. So mm-hmm. I don't. I've I've kind of always just brushed that off as something I would never consider. But and overall, occupational licensure is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Occupational licensure is the reason why you know that when you go to your SLP they are licensed. That's why you, but the thing is, is that they're trying to like make it a little bit looser. If you remember the fight, what was it back in 2015 or 16? Was it Texas that tried to really loosen the reins on who was considered a speech pathologist or a speech therapist? They tried to, yeah, they tried to get rid of state certification and they they wanted it to be only C's. And I, I don't think this politician realized just how educated SLPs were and without the state licensure, then places could not bill like either Medicare or Medicaid or something. It, it, it seriously demeaned the professionals and the clinicians was, and there was an instant fight back from the great network of SLPs out there on Facebook. And he dropped, the guy ended up dropping the bill, but it was something that would really, it was all about decreasing Medicare and Medicaid dollars. That was, that was his ulterior motive. Well, and I do know because speech pathology, like many fields, used to not be a master's level, right? So there still are SLPs out there who do not have the master's level, but were grandfathered in. But then there are states where I did one of my externships. I had to make sure that my externship supervisor was a triple C SLP because Nevada, where I was, doesn't require that. In the hospitals, they did, but not in the schools. And one of the the links, and we'll have this link as well, it's the Saving Utah Licensure um, from the ASHA Wire. And basically it was in July 1st, 2019, uh, the law requiring licensure for audiologists and SLPs was set to expire in preparation for a hearing on the law known as a Sunset Review. A staff member for the Utah Occupational and Processional Licensure Review contacted ASHA. The committee's message was surprising. The committee wanted to let the law expire, effectively abolishing licensure for the state's audiologists and SLPs. Uh, Finally, the committee voted, deciding a seven-to-one margin that professional licensure for audiology and SLPs would continue for at least another 10 years. However, the certification can be revisited as needed. These are going to happen. These boards are, com- are are shrinking and they're going to find ways to save money and try to get more services. And, and unfortunately, when you look in schools, SLPs are hard to come by. SLPs are hard to come by in private practice. And sometimes the politicians don't see what we do. And they're going to say, oh, anyone can tutor a kid. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's always going to come down to money. It's always going to come down to where is the funding and edu- things like education and and basically government funded healthcare is always going to be some of the, the things that politicians fight for things that they are not necessarily using in their own personal lives uh mm-hmm. they, they kind of look towards towards education and medicare and medicaid and all three of those things are very closely tied to speech pathology so any way they can try to demean us and make it make us a cheaper type of field that's what these lawmakers are going to be looking looking to do. And if we're not and licensed, as much as, oh, sorry, Michelle. Uh, I was just saying, as much as 
licensure, me getting licensure in different states has been a pain. I know how important that licensure is because if we want to have reciprocity between states, if one state requires a license and another state just says, oh yeah, you can practice, then how do you, how do you say, how, how do we work for that reciprocity if there's no baseline for it? The PCC, which is the Professional Certification Coalition who ASHA has joined uh, within the first three months of its formation, has over 100 professional uh, organizations have joined to help fight for uh, occupational licensing reform. So make sure that we stay licensed like we should. So, But let's face it, we bill for Medicaid. If we're not licensed, we don't, we're not able to bill for Medicaid, and that saves the, the state some dollars. Well, and like you said, I think there are people in the legislature that don't realize that when they propose ideas like this. I think they do realize it, that, mm. that, that we're billing Medicaid, and this is a, a quick way for them to decrease Medicaid spending without affecting the overall, without making it obvious that, that, I didn't that think they're doing that. it. Like they, they, can't, they can't come out and say, oh, we're cutting Medicaid, there'd be crazy uproar. But if all of a sudden someone gets sick and needs speech therapy services, wait a second, this is coming out of pocket. And again, I've all, I, this is my soapbox. I've been on this. This is why when we write up reports, when we do evaluations, when we write our IEPs or plan of cares, we need to make sure that we're using appropriate language. There's a push between using our speech language and language that is easily understood by everybody. But if we're saying that we are working on production of R, that's not that doesn't give credits or credence to what we do as SLPs. If we're saying we're talking about anterior position of medial derotocized phonemic R, now one as a professional, we know what we're talking about. But as as well, we are advocating for ourselves. Yes. So that we don't sound like all we do is play coloring books and spin uh, battle tops. Mm -hmm in between therapy sessions and also just constantly citing the evidence-based practices behind mm -hmm. that. There's tons of R, uh, you, you know, you can very quickly just put a quick little reference to the, to the research. Uh, I think that will just further that. I think that's going to be a huge focus of our field and ASHA moving forward is just getting true evidence-based practices of the efficacy and benefits of speech pathology. I think with, uh, with, rising grad schools out there and more and more graduates coming into the field and our, and our, our, uh, our field constantly growing, uh, I think, and of course, with government decreases on spending, I think us, I think the research is going to be crucial for the future of our field. We want to hear from you. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com, and let us know. You can email us, speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Or hit us up on the phone number 614-681-1798. You can even text that number right now while you sit in your car, 614-681-1798. But don't text while driving. That's dangerous. Uh, SSPod is the hashtag, right? Yes, it is. You, you got, got it. it. Awesome. Our last story is kind of related. Uh, again, coming out of the ASHA leader, just a little bit of a chart. It's our SLP to population ratio. Uh Basically, it's a nice little chart saying how oversaturated is your area or undersaturated for jobs. 
when we talk about licensure, when we talked about serving children in the beginning, I don't know about you guys, but Ohio is in the green, meaning that we have about 50 to 62 SLPs, ASHA licensed SLPs for every 100,000 residents. Yeah, I think one thing to remember with this map, this is just simply a ASHA certified SLP to mm -hmm. population ratio. So California's in the red showing that there's, uh, which red is actually good on this map. Is so, it? Is it, right? No, 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 red means- No. No, red is the lowest, red is bad. Lowest percentage. Oh, okay, yep. so the- Purple is good, purple Purple's is good. good, really? Yeah. So New York is good? Well, they have the most SLPs per 100,000. Oh, uh, okay, okay, so, so basically what I was saying was, it, this is a population to therapist ratio. This is not, this really does not, I don't think this truly correlates to open jobs or best job market. So I think that's one thing to kind of, to kind of keep in mind here. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. Having worked my externship in Nevada, another one of the lowest percentages there, because you also have a lot of Nevada where people don't live. Where's Nevada? Right next to California. Ah, okay. Yep. I see it. I was looking on the map without any words on it. I, can I not identify anything west of the Mississippi? Yeah. There's no way that, that New York city with all of the grad schools really popularized in that one small area, there's no way that that place is rich with job openings. Well, uh, no. So these aren't job openings. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, this is a, it's an, it, there's, it could be misinterpreted. Exactly. Well, I bring this up because we have, this is the end of the year for some of our CF listeners. Uh, May is the Better Speech and Hearing Month. School jobs are wrapping up and you may want to go and find a job. And if you are attempting to get a job in New York, according to this chart, it may be a little bit more difficult. It may not. However, what are some job tips that you guys have for our soon-to-be CFs or people like myself who may be leaving schools after May. Well, I've been interviewing a lot of people for my private practice. And one of the biggest things that I remember when I graduated and then went, started looking for jobs was I knew absolutely nothing about the difference between being W2 and contracting. It was just, Ooh, it, yeah. it was just something that, that colleges just, I didn't either. Colleges yep. never discuss it. It's, it's not something ever mentioned. I remember, graduating and getting my master's and thinking, oh, I'm going to get a salary position right away. And 90% of the jobs that I applied for were contracting. And I knew nothing about it at all. And it wasn't until I met other clinicians when I was doing visits who were contractors and they described it to me. And I think that's something that colleges really need to start teaching the students, uh, the pros and cons to both. Because uh, there, there certainly are pros and cons to both. And you pretty much have to pick and choose what's best for your your life and your specific needs. Um, and another thing is schools to kind of teach these students the differences between the different people who are going to reach out to you. When mm -hmm. you when you have a large company reaching out to you and interviewing you over the phone and offering you jobs over the phone without meeting you face to face, that should instantly be very alarming. Like I don't, I, I would never hire a speech pathologist to work for me and my company unless I met them face to face. These are people who are going to work with children, clients, adults. You have to meet face to face. So one thing that I think is really important to be aware of is 
there's a lot of recruiters in this field. There's people who will call you and make you sound like you are the most desirable SLP in the world. You have to join their team. You're a great fit. But you don't recognize that if you do sign on and you do sign on with, this, with these people, that person that you talk to over the phone is getting a commission check for hiring you. So that's something to really be aware of. Is this, is this truly a good fit? Are you truly meant to work for this place? Or did this person just sell you something? And, they, and you made, oh, sorry, Mike. Yeah, they, they just sold you a job and th this person got paid. They get paid when they get job matches. So that's something to always be aware of. And if you're working for a contract company, you may not be able to work for that school or that placement for at least a year. You may have a one-year non-compete clause. Uh, I had a friend mm -hmm. that uh, she was awesome. I met her because she was a contract worker that came into the school district. She was awesome. The district wanted her. She wanted her. And the district had to pay like 90000 or or $100,000 to this company to break her out of the non-compete clause. And they said, hey, we can't afford to do that why don't you reapply in about a year and a half when your non-competes over? And if we have a position open, uh, we'll hire you then. She yeah. never did it. Yeah. Because they either have to pay it basically a placement fee mm -hmm. or a finder's fee to that company. Now there are some really great companies that you can work for. And I've had friends work for, but um, just be aware. I learned later once I was hired into the first school I worked for in Colorado, um, having interviewed through some of those placement companies that are out there mm -hmm. that even spoke to us in grad school, Matt. Um, I remember them, they write up their own bio about you that they use to sell to the school districts or sell to whatever company that they're trying to find you a job with. And then I sat in on interviews when we were hiring someone through that same company on the other end. And I had been hired directly by the school district. And it was really interesting because, of course, they want to make you sound really good. So when we started asking some questions a little further about what that recruiter and placement person said, it was a little, a little sugar-coated. So <laughs> I would say if I ever was going through one of those again, because I worked with one looking for some jobs when I moved to Texas, um, I specifically asked to see exactly what they were sending people because there's no reason you shouldn't be able to see what they're saying about you. Now, to um, potential jobs. Michelle, you graduated out of OU, right? Yep. And then you did your PEY, CFY in Colorado? Correct, yes. Was that more difficult to be doing that out of state than it was in state? Not at all. Really? No. Yeah, I know. I've, I've gotten that question before, and maybe it was just Colorado, but um, there was really no issue. As long as you meet the ASHA requirements for that CFY and make sure that your supervisor meets those requirements <laughs> and keep track of your paperwork, I mean, there's no reason why it should matter what state you do that job in as long as you meet the requirements for ASHA. Makes sense. Michael, did you do your uh, CFY, PEY in the same state you graduated from? I did not. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I, I got my master's in New York. Uh, and I, and you can very quickly recognize how saturated that overall market is, <laughs> uh, did literally grad schools everywhere and moved down to Philadelphia and had a, had a, had a great CFY experience. And obviously I've been here since, and since I moved here in 2015, I think there's probably about three or four brand new grad programs since I moved here. And now this area is getting very saturated. So I think, 
you know, you always constantly hear, we need SLPs, we need SLPs. But if you think about it, you have a solid group of 30, 40 students graduating every semester. You know, the saturation thing is definitely something to be concerned about for the future. Be willing to move. That's what I would say. I mean, like, I, I work in an area that is not overly saturated, and I am literally 25 minutes, 30 minutes from two bigger cities in Ohio. And the reason why it's not oversaturated is because it's kind of in the middle of, I don't want to say nowhere, but it's the houses are farther away. The, the students populations a little bit more spread across a larger area that it becomes a little bit easier to find jobs in this area. Well, and I would throw out there for anyone looking for jobs, a couple things. I think we get very reliant on online searches and they can be really good but you've got to be creative as to what you search for. Don't just search for speech language pathologists because people call us all sorts of different mm -hmm. titles in job searches. So speech language, speech therapy, speech teacher, speech. I mean, you, it might be under a lot of different things. Um, special education, rehab. Sometimes they pull up. It's under physical therapy or general rehabilitation therapy job postings. Uh, and then secondly, I would really encourage people again, don't just rely on the online search. If there is a, if you want to be in a certain city or a certain region, go stop in places and ask if they have openings, ask if they're hiring, meet the rehab director of rehab, meet the director of special education. And it's a lot more likely that if something does come up, they're going to think of the person they met face to face. Yeah. It's really amazing how little a lot of hiring people truly look into a resume uh, in terms of certifications or your externships or those sorts of things. Uh, one piece of advice I've always had is apply directly to the school district. Go onto the school district website and apply directly to them. Don't, don't rely on Indeed or CareerBuilder or things like that. You know, send your resume around, network, and send it to individual people to, to give to, to their supervisors. Uh, you know, there's, there's definitely some great CFYs out there, some great positions but you really need to kind of dig deep these days. We have a nice little thing going here in Cincinnati or in the Cincinnati area. Uh, all the schools actually will post all their jobs to one sort of like one board, one web board, I guess you want to call it. So then that That's way you awesome. can load your resume up one time and then click to the different schools that you're sending it to. That's perfect. Right. <laughs> I don't know, guys. Also, the other part is is negotiation of salaries. Uh, I'm a big fan of even negotiating everything. I got screwed in my very first job of home care. Uh, they didn't. I didn't know what to ask for, so they gave me it at fifty dollars a visit, which I thought was great. And then I found out that the company was probably making anywhere between one hundred and thirty to two hundred dollars a visit off of me. Yep. And I learned that. Oh, about three months ago. I've been doing this for eight years and I'm an idiot. And I've realized that I could have been making so much more money with just a simple, I want to make a little, just an, I want to make more statement. There's always in demand. There's always someone out there getting a percentage of what you're doing. That's, that's one thing to kind of always be aware of is where is the full payment going? Uh, and, and I think CFYs being, uh, so new and so naive, just, mm -hmm. ba just based on experience, I think a lot of people recognize that and they may promise you great supervision and don't follow through. 
They may promise you ability to to co-treat and do things like that and not follow through. I think uh, I think all of us certified SLPs out there can do a much better job ourselves of providing these great experiences for CFYs. And I think uh, you know we can do a, a much better job overall, uh, really making sure these CFY positions are what these people need. Any uh, closing thoughts on this for you guys or what you would offer a CF or someone stuck in their job looking to find a new job? I mean, I, I said what I said earlier is just be, be willing to go meet people. And if there's meetup groups professionally, uh, you got to make connections, particularly if you want to be in a certain area, a certain city or a certain region, uh, because I've had to look in specific region, regions for jobs due to us moving with the military. So I didn't have the option when the recruiter would call me and say, we have this job for you and it's two hours away. That wasn't an option for me. So if you're bound by a region or a city, then you've got to be pretty proactive about um, making connections so that you know about the job openings and that they think of you because they've met you. And I would also say, don't be afraid to ask the, the hard hitting questions in your interview. Ask about billable time, ask about productivity, ask about supervision, ask every single question you possibly can, because it's not, because you think about it, it's not just you interviewing, it's also them mm -hmm. sell, selling, selling themselves to you. Yeah, you're interviewing them. Think of it exactly. that way as well. Ask every single question you possibly ask. How much the pay is? Ask how much the pay is at the at the interview, and ask what you what the take home is, and all sorts of these things. You just you just busted your ass to get a master's degree in speech. Get out there and uh, and and make sure you get the right position for you. And what do they offer for continuing education, especially mm -hmm. when you're right out the door yeah. as a CFY? Do you have certain certifications that you want to get in the next few years are they supportive of that and and, and ask them if they've listened to the speech science podcast <laughs> if they haven't then you should walk out the door or or take their phone and download it for them exactly and give a five My, and give a five-star review <laughs> my biggest thing is is i would i always tell this to my cfs or my student interns or whatever we're in demand that if the job doesn't fit what you're looking for and you've got your CFs, if you got your C's already, go to the job that sounds like it's a good fit for you. Don't take just a job to get paid because you will regret this career very quickly if you are not in the right area doing what you want to do with it. Agreed. So, we want yep. to hear from you. Head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. And from there, you can email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com or give us a phone call or a text 614-681-1798 or find us on the Twitter sphere, Speech Science PC or hashtag SSPod. And what is it on that Instagram thing? I feel like the old man of the podcast. I don't understand Instagram. What is the name of it? You're missing yeah. out. It's uh, speech, under, under, speech underscore science. There we go. Coming up after the break, I got to sit down with Dr. Howard Goldstein, the Associate Dean of Research and Professor of Communication Sciences and Disorder in the College of Behavioral and Community Science or Community Service Sciences at the University of South Florida. Oh yeah, also he's the candidate for president-elect of ASHA. That's coming right up. This podcast is brought to you by Pearson, the company behind the self 
GFTA and the brand new PPVT5 and EVT3. These new easy to use vocabulary assessments are brief and reliable for two years, six months old to those 90 and beyond. Learn more about these new tests at pearsonclinical.com slash exceptional. That's pearsonclinical.com slash X-C-E-P-T-I-O-N-A-L. Welcome back to Speech Science. I'm Matt Hott. I'm excited. I'm honored to be joined today by Dr. Howard Goldstein, running for president-elect in the ASHA elections, which drops uh, today, April 16th. Uh, Dr. Goldstein is a 1989 ASHA Fellow, a 2016 Honor of the Association. Uh, he served as an ASHA Vice President for Science and Research from 2013 to 2015. Over 140 scholarly journals and articles, two books, 40 research papers or, and grants. But my favorite part, you've served time at Ohio State uh, and also University of Pittsburgh, and you're currently the Associate Dean of Research and Professor of Communication Sciences and Disorders in the College of Behavioral and Community Sciences at the University of South Florida in Tampa. Dr. Goldstein, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Matt. Uh, I, I, I am a Ohio State fan, so I do have to ask about that eventually. But mm -hmm. before we get into anything, I always like asking this question to every candidate. Why? <laughs> Why are you running? Why do you want to be the voice of ASHA? Well, I'm running because of a long history of involvement in ASHA and the ASHA Foundation and various boards and, and committees. And one of the things that I've learned is, is that I have the ability to um, lead at a strategic level and um, I don't think I would be doing this if it wasn't for encouragement from people that I've served with previously. And it's at their bequest that I've um, run, this is my third time running. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I think I have a number of the leadership characteristics that I hope um, will resonate with um, ASHA members. And more than anything, you know, I'm really dedicated to trying to increase the number of ASHA members that not only engage in the organization, but vote. So last year, less than 4% of our members voted. So I wanna provide opportunities for ASHA members to get to know the candidates about. One of the big things that I notice as an ASHA member and, and doing this show and talking to people, the biggest question that I've come across is that people feel like ASHA doesn't care or doesn't recognize what their problems are on the ground. What can mm -hmm. you say to those clinicians that say, ASHA just takes my money, I don't know why I even pay it? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, that um, having served on the ASHA board, I came away with much more respect for the way in which ASHA is run and it's, responsiveness and attempts to be especially responsive to its members. There are so many resources that this professional organization is able to bring to its members that other organizations can't do. I mean, for one, we're a very large organization. We now have over 200,000 members. 
being in Washington, D.C., and, um, you know, with all these various professional organizations with their um, buildings and boards and, and so forth, you come to realize that there are a couple of really, really big organizations, the NRA and the AARP. And then after that, there are the also RANDs. And we're, I'm not sure where we're, we're at right now, but I wouldn't be surprised if we're in the top 15 or, or maybe the, the top 10. Wow. You know, so ASHA actually has a powerful advocacy voice, but it could be greater. And that would be if we had a little more grassroots support and people realize how much their voice matters. Because a lot of the things that people really care about are not necessarily national um, policies and laws and, and regulations. It has more to do with what's happening at the state and local level and within their own jobs and their own agencies. But I think that we can do a better job of a couple things. One is identifying the success stories that people have had in terms of dealing with reimbursement issues, workload issues. Um, there are so many things that impinge upon the daily lives of speech language pathologists and audiologists we need to share the success stories and then give people the tools for advocating effectively for themselves um, within their, their, their states as well as nationally. With 200,000 members, we could be a really important voice and more so than we are. ASHA as an organization though also has really good relationships with a lot of other professional organizations because a lot of these issues are not specific just to speech language pathology and audiology. Um, you know, so we have to strive to um, enhance those, those relationships and work in, in conjunction with them as best we can. And then there are all the resources like the clinical practice portal. I mean, if there are members that don't know about that resource at that point, at this point, that would be really unfortunate because there's, there's a wealth of information at their fingertips. You know, there are these evidence-based maps that have been um, truly responsive to the fact that speech language pathologists and audiologists were saying, we need the ammunition to go and, um, you know, show our payers where our evidence actually exists and so forth. So I think that, you know, and I think that we'll probably come up with many more examples as we talk <laughs> about ways in which, which ASHA is actually a very good value for its members. I mean, I don't even, do you remember the last time our dues went up? It's been a long time. I've only been in this field for about eight years and I think the dues have been the same for all eight years actually. I think. Yeah, it's been quite a while. <laughs> you know, and it partially because our membership keeps going up a, as well, but you know, the, um, the other sources of revenue that come from continuing ed and, and so forth, get plugged right back into what ASHA is trying to do for its members. I loved how you said uh, giving the member the ammunition or the tool or, or whatever they need to support themselves. I'm currently the ASHA SEAL for Ohio. I've been the ASHA SEAL okay. off and on for the last four years, depending on what position I am mm -hmm. uh, at the Ohio level. Mm -hmm. But I can't tell you how many times someone actually will email me and I will send them to the, the professional practice portal for, for schools. Mm -hmm. And it's the first time they've ever seen that. 
Yeah. And, or someone will come to me and say, how do I, uh, tell my, you know, educator, the, my supervisor, I want more money. How do we do that? And I send them towards the ASHA link talking about the different school districts that have, uh, ratified higher pay or, you know, reimbursement for the ASHA C's. Mm -hmm. How do you see ASHA getting into or, or getting those tools into those people's hands? Yeah. Um, it isn't for lack of trying, but I think that um, we have to be a little more responsive to um, things like social media. Uh, you know, the uh, putting things on the ASHA side, trying to send out information via email works pretty well for me, but it doesn't work for, you know, <laughs> probably a majority of our, our, our members. And, um, you know, I think that ASHA has been a little slow to figure out a better communication strategy that is not just one way, but also gives an opportunity for ASHA members feel like they're being heard um, because they, they are, um, you know, at, at the ASHA conventions and even at state conventions, there are typically forums that are set up specifically for ASHA members to come and, you know, express their concerns and, you know, tell us what their, their issues are. And then the board goes back after each of those meetings and talks about what it is that we can do to address those, those concerns. Many of these concerns are not ones that can be addressed quickly or easily, but, um, you know, somehow the ASHA members need to be better informed of what's going on. Um, the, you know, for example, one of the um, things that has really kind of come to the fore in recent years is the fact that we've had the same training model for speech language pathologists for 50 some years. <laughs> Sad to say, but it's true. And um, the scope of practice is so large that the generalist model most people would agree is not really satisfactory. What are the alternatives? You know, so there's a, you know, a lot going on right now in terms of discussing, you know, what happened with the AED? What were the positive um, aspects of that? And what were some of the negative shortcomings of, of that strategy? You know, what can we learn from other professions? So there's a lot of research that's going on right now into ways in which we might, um, change our, our um, approach to training professionals. I think that there are, you know, um, other issues related to training paraprofessionals. You know, that will yeah. go hand in hand as, as, as well. About two weeks ago, I sat down with the Talking With Tech crew, Chris Bouguet and Rachel Madel, and we did a live Facebook interaction talking about the uh, AAC certification. And we got probably 50 to 80 text messages and emails within that hour mm -hmm. asking questions about both the good and the bad. Right. And some people feel like if we go too far into the specialization, especially for a certification like the AAC, right. it may make myself who works in the schools who might not be AAC certified, parents may ignore what I'm saying. And there's that mm -hmm. fear. And then mm -hmm. the other side is, is it just a money grab for either the person getting certified or you know the overall association. Mm -hmm. how, how do we bridge that gap to say, hey, no, this is good, but 
that the person who generalizes in the school, they're still okay as well. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that there's not a real clear distinction between like medical speech language pathology and school speech language pathology. But there are lots of, you know, areas of, you know, potential specialization or just degrees of, of competence that, that we'll have to take into account. Um, you know, and I think that almost all of the training programs are finding it difficult in certain disorder areas to have both faculty expertise and clinical practicum experiences that are sufficient for people to come away with a high level of expertise. You know, so it may be that all of our programs won't offer everything. And that we'll have an ability not only to get our, our clinical certification, but add to it over time. So, you know, it makes more sense in terms of, you know, our lifelong learning and continuing education to develop expertise continue developing expertise in the areas that, that we're already very competent in. But if we're interested in broadening our practice, there'll be avenues to do that as well. You know, and how do you do that without, if you try to do too much within any training program, you end up with, you know, these very lengthy <laughs> expensive degrees. You know, so, you know, we have to figure out an economical and efficient way to do so. I know a lot that I learned in grad school. I went to Ohio University down in Athens. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot that I learned was just solid bedrock that I was able to build upon once I got out into the field. Right. When I went into the field, I thought I was the best SLP when it came to working with children and articulation. And then I get thrown that first kid with childhood apraxia mm -hmm. or the, you know, the L that just never gets fixed. Mm -hmm. And you go, oh, Oh, I need more than those two bags of tricks that I learned uh, right. in this in the clinical. Right. You had mentioned the AUD, and that's been the kind of the talk a little bit for the last few years, looking at the speech side going yeah. to the clinical doctorate. Right. You currently are at University of South Florida. Right. You're working with the students. How do you see the clinical doctorate? If you see it this way, do you see it helping? new clinicians and then how do you see it that way or, or do you not hmm. <laughs> um i don't know i mean there there are pros and cons to that i mean i think that um one of our fears is that um the more that we increase the clinical doctorate the fewer people will have getting the phd you know our research degree you know, we need people going into our field. I mean, that's a huge problem with universities not being able to fill positions as it is. Um, you know, there's been claims that that hasn't happened in, in audiology. There are pathways that they've created in some innovative programs to kind of smooth the transition between AUDs and PhDs. We need experimentation and innovation. I don't think that we're gonna do a one-size-fits-all and sort of dictate to programs. And I think that too many, you know, I was a department chair um, for nine out of the 12 years that I was at Florida State University. And there was a tendency for department chairs um, when we would get together at the 
Council of Academic Programs for CSD means to basically ask, tell me what I need to do. And I hated that. I didn't want to be told what to do. <laughs> I just wanted to know what the minimal standards were because I wasn't going to be satisfied with the minimal standards. I wanted to do things that made sense, that were going to really make a difference in the lives of our clients and um, uh, you know, work within our program, the talent that we had among our tenure stream faculty and our clinical faculty. Let's say, let's fast forward. ASHA, the ASHA president is a three-year term. You're the ASHA president-elect, ASHA president, and then the past president. When you, if you win after the three years, what would you like to see have accomplished that you could say, I had a good run as a president? Hmm. You know, this is an interesting question. And um, because when I was a vice president for science and research, I can point to what I accomplished there. But when I started, it was um, a little seedling of an idea of what I thought I might be able to accomplish. And sometimes it has a lot to do with the opportunities that present themselves. So there may be a lot of ideas that I may have. I mean, we we're just talking about one in terms of, um, you know, training programs. I think um, making better use of extenders or um, assistance and maybe doing that more in line with audiology and speech pathology assistance together, doing, you know, communication assistance is something that I've talked to some of my audiology colleagues um, about. You know, there are some innovative things that we can do about our training programs. But I think that if I had one thing right now that I would want to accomplish, it would have to do with coming up with a better way of engaging our members. I think that the the communication um, uh, methods that we have need to be improved. And I don't know exactly how to do that. But when I was the vice president for science and research, my major accomplishment was um, strategic planning for the journals program. And the reason that I was very sensitive to that issue was in part because many people were telling me how disgusted they were with a, a process that was punitive, lengthy, not very receptive to clinical research. You know, some of those complaints may have been a little bit overblown, but certainly I experienced them too, to a certain degree. And I started having discussions with people um, with much more experience than I did about scholarly publishing and trends in scholarly publishing. So we put together um, a diverse committee of individuals to sort of study what, what we might do. And we changed the journal program dramatically, in, you know, within a couple of years. And now, within a year's time, we had cut the um, review process time in half. The number of submissions has skyrocketed. The number of articles that are being published uh, you know, it's gone up dramatically. I mean, that was quite a good accomplishment, but I would just happen to, you know, be in the right place at the right time to lead an effort without having a really strong agenda of what exactly needed to be done. But I had a recognition of what the problem was. Um, you know, so I think that um, communication is one of the, the, the big issues because um, for 
you know, I don't want to come back in three years and say, you know, it would be great if ASHA members just had a better idea of the value <laughs> of ASHA. You know, because we've been working on that problem for a really long time. We need a breakthrough. And, you know, we want, I, I think that there's every reason for our members to be proud of our organization and proud of the ASHA Foundation. I mean, there are so many features of our professional organization and the foundation that supports young investigators and clinical achievements that other organizations look at and as the model. You know, so that, that would be my number one thing. And I think that there are issues around our, um, the, the way in which we were responsive to a changing environment around service delivery. It could be in the schools, it could be in nursing homes, it could be in SNFs, it's in, you know, every setting. We're in a, a time of, of dramatic change in, um, and that presents opportunities for us. We need to be able to rise to the occasion and be thinking about what is it that we can do that will you know, ensure that people with communication um, impairments you know, have the, the access to, the opportunity to um, live a high quality life. You served, you said you had served uh, a two year term, three year term, 2013 to 2015 as the VP for- Yeah, that's three years. Three years <laughs> for science and research. Mm -hmm. I'm a speech path, I'm not a math major anymore. <laughs> We're currently, as a country, in the middle of a measles outbreak because people are following pseudoscience on mm -hmm. um, the vaccines. As SLPs, ASHA just released this year about not using the rapid prompting method because there's not research based off of that. Mm -hmm. What do you see ASHA's role in, in helping push better science and, and leaning into those EB, into that evidence-based practice? There's a lot mm -hmm. of... SLPs who say, well, I know that's what ASHA said, but I'm going to use RPM because I saw the video where it worked or, yeah. you know, th there's all these different stuff. Where can ASHA really help push back mm -hmm. to the research yeah. that it is true? <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm chairing the, the CRISP committee, oh. which is clinical research, implementation science, and evidence-based practice. And you know that is our our mission is to promote the use of the creation and the use of evidence based practice. And I think, and I've been a clinical researcher my my whole career. I mean, there there's nobody who has been you know as dedicated to trying to get clinical practice research front and center within our organization. You know, I've done it in terms of acceptance of single subject design. When I started in the field, if you were doing single subject experimental design research, getting it published in our journals was near impossible. You know, we were able to elevate the status of the kind of research that our clinicians could actually take part in, you know, and um, engage in, you know, with some guidance, but pretty much on, on, on their own and contribute to our knowledge pool. And also come to realize that, you know what? Not all of our treatments work. True. You know, and it's because I'm a clinical researcher, I'm pretty humble. 
Um, I can give you so many examples of brilliant <laughs> ideas that I've had. And oftentimes, it isn't that they didn't work. It's that there was something else I needed to do to make it work. And, <laughs> you, know, you know, I'm basically a scientific clinician and a clinical scientist. Um, and have been for, and, and if I wasn't, didn't have a good clinical intuition, I don't think I'd be very successful as a scientist either, but I'm a humble scientist when it comes to doing clinical research and, um, you know, still learning how important um, the, uh, the implementation science part of that is. You know, when that first came into, um, uh, you know, was on the horizon and being talked about, I was going, wow, are we really ready for this? We don't have very many people doing the efficacy work. <laughs> and um, I quickly became convinced that the best way for us to do the treatment development work is if we thought about implementation at the same time, you know, so that we don't come up with treatments that are impractical, that, um, you know, are not cost effective and things like that. You know, so I'm continually evolving in terms of my my thoughts about clinical practice research. And we have to train our clinicians and our scientists both about what qualifies as evidence-based practice. Um, you know, just because somebody writes about it doesn't mean that there's a strong evidence base. Um, because somebody tells you about it or you see you know, something on the internet about some new promising approach. Um, it, it actually takes years to develop and refine interventions to optimize them to the point that they do the best that we possibly can to maximize outcomes for our clients. I, I love all of that. I, there's a reason our show is called Speech Science, and it's because myself and, and the guy who helped start it, Lucas Stuber, we love the idea of evidence-based mm -hmm. therapy. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking about that, I was thinking about when I went accidentally head-to-head -head with the creator of RPM through a series of emails, and mm -hmm. I invited her on the show. Uh, long story short, she turned us down. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I also well, love how you... That, you know, it isn't just that RPM or facilitated communication are bad. It's the fact that, you know, we're selling a bit, you know, mm -hmm. um, the, the, these approaches, when they're already approaches that are more successful out there. And that's what's really criminal about it, is when people aren't seeking the services that they really would benefit from because, you know, pay big bucks in order to try this approach. Yeah, I've become more more uh, cautious now whenever mm -hmm. I see something and they're like, pay the $150 and see our research. And I'm like, if I can't Google Scholar your research, there might be a, a, an issue there. Yeah. You know, a number of years ago, I was invited to talk about controversial therapies and speech language pathology for children with autism at NIH. And I, you know, I had done all my research about sensory integration, facilitated communication, auditory integration treatment, you name it. There were a number of approaches and related to autism, megavitamins. And on the airplane ride on the way there, I realized that 
parents were going to be a major um, uh, constituency, stakeholders would be in the audience. I totally rewrote my, my talk because it didn't need to be about the science. Right. It needed to be about consumerism and show me the data. You know, um, and eventually there was an article that was published that was entitled Show Me the Data in Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders. Before we let you go, I want to get to know you just a little bit. The, the Who is Howard Goldstein, the candidate? Why mm -hmm. did you get into therapy? And why did you get into speech therapy to start? Oh, my goodness. That's a that's a, really a story <laughs> I usually tell over there. Because it actually started when I was in high school. So I'm not going to tell you all the tawdry details. But um, I ended up um, working with children back then they were called trainable mentally retarded, severe intellectual disabilities, um, in a classroom that was next door to my high school. And then I also ended up volunteering in a classroom for children with behavior disorders in my old elementary school that was near where I lived. Um, and then I went to college and thought I wanted to be a lawyer <laughs> and um, took my first course in political science and said, where's the science? <laughs> and, you know, ended up kind of looking around for majors and um, kind of went back to um, disabilities, behavior problems and severe disabilities and ended up my, at the beginning of my junior year, finding speech and hearing science. There's another part of that story I'm not telling you, but, um, uh, I was at UC Santa Barbara at that point in time. It was a superb program. I was really well prepared coming out of my undergraduate program. Um, I actually did participated in two research studies. One um, resulted in my first publication, which was on clinician child discourse. Um, I listened and transcribed tapes of clinicians working with children with language delays across from across the country. Wow. And I learned a lot about what not to do. Well, it's <laughs> good examples of um, uh, language therapy. And then I spent a summer, I was hired to do um, therapy for kids with multiple arctic disorders. Hmm. Um, and I learned to be a very precise um, positive clinician that summer from a couple of just extraordinary supervisors. You know, it was really inten an intense experience because it was part of this research program. But man, did they shape me up as a clinician. So <laughs> I had this really strong foundation coming out of my undergraduate program. And then I built upon it when I went to the University of Washington um, and went to Peabody College which was part of Vanderbilt University for my PhD, which was actually in developmental psych and mental retardation research. Wow. So I've actually kind of gravitated to um, interdisciplinary, interprofessional programs throughout my whole career. So how did you decide, or at what point did you decide, I want to work training and researching versus, you know, being in the schools or being in a private practice or making millions as a dialectical SLP. <laughs> yeah, wow. You know, I wish I could say I had a plan, 
but I didn't have a plan. <laughs> I, so I said that I started my undergraduate degree when I was a junior. Right. And I had to take all these prerequisite courses and try to get caught up. Well, it turns out that the ASHA convention that year was at in Las Vegas. Oh. You know, so it was like driving distance from Santa Barbara. And a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to go. I said, sure, you know. <laughs> so I went to my first ASHA convention and there were, and I didn't know anything about the field. It was my first semester. Yeah. So I just went to these different talks that, you know, the title sounded interesting. And um, there's a talk that I went to that actually related to what I ended up doing my master's thesis on and my doctoral dissertation on. So, uh, you know, I was, there was something about the, the scientific study of language development that was really appealing to me, but I always wanted to work with, with clients themselves, you know, so, um, yeah. I found I was able to find people that were really good at doing clinical research and you know um, it wasn't planful at all it was just opportunities that presented themselves that I took advantage of and then you found time to write two books is that correct yeah there you know one of them is on, well one is an edited book on social communication you know so you once you're kind of get enmeshed in a field, you, you know, you know, all the major players that are doing work that's related to, to your work. So that was, that was a, a lot of fun. And one is more of a how-to book around some of the peer intervention work that I had done. Um, now, is that the promoting social communication and then the path to literacy? No, so those are actually oh. curricula. Oh, okay. <laughs> So that's more recent. So my recent work has really been more um, related to um, providing language and literacy training for high-risk kids in high-poverty oh. communities. You know, so one of the and it, they they actually grew out of a um, center for response to intervention in early childhood, and a group of us from Kansas, Minnesota, Oregon. Um, and Ohio basically had this big project that was funded by the Institute of Educational Science. And we had this opportunity to conceptualize what RTI could be like for early childhood, because it, it kind of been taking off in elementary schools and beyond, but not really in preschools and below. So my um, part of that project had to do with developing tier two interventions. And the tier two interventions that we developed ended up being, you know, focused on vocabulary and comprehension through story friends and path to literacy, which focuses on phonological awareness and alphabet knowledge. So those curricula have been published by Paul Brooks, but we're still doing work on um, improving those, those approaches and um, scaling them up in, um, within school districts and private child care settings, Head Start, um, involving parents. So it's really kind of fun work. We, we really, um, I have a great team and we really enjoy doing this work. That's pretty awesome. I wish I would have had that back when I did my preschool tour in the, uh, the lower income school district. So what do you do for fun when you're not 
researcher, when you're not SLP, when you're not on the ASHA board or the ASHA foundation, what is it that you do during your downtime? If you're like me, it's very little to find, but. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, every day I find time to read. I love reading novels. I read um, nonfiction and fiction, but I, you know, if I gave you any of my book recommendations, they'd probably be fiction <laughs> the past year. Um, I love music. Um, you know, so I enjoy listening to music. Um, I um, am a golfer, but don't seem to have much time to do golfing. Um, <laughs> not that I would like. <laughs> Did you see Tiger Woods this weekend? Oh, it was just amazing. I loved it. I felt like I was eight years old again watching him win for one of the first times. It yeah, was, it was just it was awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was a great story. It was fun. I watched it from nine o'clock in the morning, and I was, you know, wrapped up until till the very end when he was hugging his kids. That was something yeah. else. What What is the book that you would recommend right now that that you're you're enjoying? Okay, so the best book that I read recently is A Gentleman in Moscow. Hmm. It's about, it's kind of like, almost like historical fiction. It's about this count, you know, from the days of the Tsar after um, um, the, the, the war he was in, basically um, being punished for being a Tsarist and, um, you know, but he was royalty. So he was um, sentenced to life in the Metropole Hotel in Moscow which was a fancy hotel. Yeah. Um, and he had, he lived in the hotel um, prior, but now he was living like in a little attic um, room rather than its fancy suite. And it tells the, the whole story of, you know, the people in his life, the changes that were happening, you know, historically. And it was just such an engaging book that I didn't want it to end. <laughs> <laughs> That's a sign of a really good book. I was going to say, that and sounds it, better it than the last really book I read. Well written. Mm -hmm. That sounds better than the last book I read. It was a Stephen King book about the Kennedy assassination. Mm. In the middle 100 pages, I felt like, I was like, what just happened? This book died. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Dr. Goldstein, thank you so much for sitting down with us. I appreciate the opportunity, and it was nice meeting you, Matt. Nice meeting you. Okay. Take care. Welcome back to Speech Science, episode 74. I'm Matt Hot, joined, as always, by the wonderful Michelle Wintering. How's it going, Matt? And the fantastic Michael McLeod. What's up, buddy? I'm going to run out of superlatives to give you guys by episode 100. I'm just saying. The marvelous Matt well, There we go. Oh, so I like it. When we were in, when I was like in high school, I went to Boy Scout camp. And we were doing COPE, which was something about high lines and all this. And we had to come up with like a letter or an, an, an adjective to describe ourselves that started with our name. And someone, the kid ahead of me took, uh, what was it, Magnificent? Magnificent Michael or something like that. And my brain broke and I was just like, matriarchal Matt. And then the one, and mind you, the one girl goes, the, the trainer goes, you know, matriarchal means mom, right? And I was like, Yep, I got nothing else. Just let's just keep going. I don't know. Matriarchal? Matriarchal, yep. Matriarchal? It, wait, is it matriarchal? 
Or not matriarchal? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I'm an idiot, and it's also late, so. We're all there. It's okay. It's all good. Oh, Michelle, are you a former Cavs fan and a fan of the Akron Man of the Year, LeBron James? I mean, I have nothing against LeBron. I'm happy he's back to, in Ohio. He's not. He's not. He's, Where is he? He's in L.A. <laughs> oh, geez. See, I'm not up to date on these nice. things. He did the same thing I again. I followed college. He, he left again. That's right. He did. He did talk about But he this. didn't have a I'm show sorry. this time. Michael, are you a LeBron fan? Absolutely. Love LeBron. Uh, me too. I, li- I went to Kent State for a year to get my prereqs for grad school. And I found out when I was up there that every year he does a bicycle donation. And what does oh, that? Oh, you talked about yeah. this. That's right. And what does this have to do with speech science? Well, ooh. his school. Yeah, about six months ago, we talked about him opening up the school, and guess what? It's working, guys. Evidently, if you invest in children and give them a reason to come to school and give them confidence in themselves and give teachers the stuff they need to teach, LeBron James's "I Promise" school uh, is starting to show promises of doing well this is absolutely fantastic i remember how many haters there were when Mm -hmm. when he came up with this idea saying it wasn't sustainable they were giving away too much it's never gonna last but this is clearly working and benefiting families for this is this is this is not just education this is quality of life and this is really really incredible what lebron is doing and hopefully this sets the precedent for more athletes to follow in his footsteps. So what makes the I Promise School a little bit different, it's not a charter school. It's actually part of the Akron City School Districts. The school's budget is about $2 million, uh, roughly the same amount per pupil that it spends in other districts. The difference, uh, LeBron James's foundation has provided about $600,000 in financial support for additional teaching staff to help reduce class sizes and an additional of after-school programming and tutors. I, you know, I love it. And I love that he's taking care of his hometown and helping kids in the same neighborhoods he grew up in. And pretty much what they're doing is they're putting a major focus on parents and educating mm-hmm. parents and providing services for parents. And it just goes... And supports for working parents it, when they can't come to school for after school or pick their kid up. I mean, they've got that all built in. Exactly. It just goes to show you how important family life is outside of school. And uh, there's really only so much educators can do during those school hours if a child goes home to a toxic environment or a, or a negative influencing environment, a lot of what happens at school kind of goes out the window. So working with parents and educating them and giving them resources, overall, this is just truly in, improving quality of life. So here we go. Here are some numbers to throw at you guys because we hear these numbers all the time. How do we move our numbers for reading comprehension or math or whatever if we're in a school district? Uh, In reading both classes, the first graders had the lowest, uh, I'm sorry, uh, both classes had scored in the lowest or the first percentile. Third graders moved from the first to the ninth percentile. And fourth graders moved from the first percentile to the 16th percentile. Uh, In math, third graders jumped from the first percentile to 18th. And fourth graders moved from the second percentile to 30th. There you go. It's beautiful. They're seeing gains. I love it. Evidently, if you invest in children and their families, good things happen. And this is proof. So there you have <laughs> it. Way to go, LeBron, doing the research. 
There we go. Uh, I promise students were among those identified by the district as performing in the 10th to 25th percentile on their second grade assessments, if you were just wondering who got admitted. So I love it. I, I love LeBron James. He is my second or third favorite uh, celebrity athlete behind The Rock and Tom Hanks. They're all kind of three, one, two, and three up there. What about Shaq? Eh. Shaq's the man. Other than that genie movie where he was in a boombox, I don't really have much to say about Shaq. Oh, my goodness. I also had a Shaq poster in my room, though, that let me know that I was not seven and a half feet tall. <laughs> he is a tall gentleman. I like that. that ah. All right, y'all. Let's send this thing home. What are you guys doing in the next week? Michelle, what's good for you? Hey, I'm chugging along, getting things together here. We're setting up our office, so I'll have a nice lovely area to record with you all each week michelle's getting a podcast studio i don't know if we'd call it a studio but that's good marketing there we go don't let the facts the i had a professor dr jerry martin he would always tell me don't let the facts get in the way of a good story michael what are (laughs) your good stories this week well, hopefully I'll have some actual free time to get uh, to get some of the bigger things done. Uh, the past couple of weeks have just been session after session after session, and uh, it's been it's been a lot. It's been grueling uh, late into the evening. So I think this is going to be a good week to, to really refocus, uh, just get, get a ton of paperwork done and refocus a lot of goals and treatment plans and collaborate with staff. So uh, I think that's this week will be quite well spent. Nice. Uh, For me, I've got Easter coming up next week, so I've got to get a few things done. And then my wife and I are going to finish Santa Clarita Diet, which is Drew Barrymore's new show on Netflix, where she's a zombie realtor eating people. It is awesome. And then I got to catch up on Game of Thrones. So obviously I can see where my brain's at this week. Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Who's going to rule the Iron Throne? How many more days do you have, Matt? Uh, till I'm caught up or till it shows? Uh, well, it's okay, on, tonight, on the show. So. Yes, but uh, till you're caught up. And also, I was meaning about school. Oh, school days. I'm sorry. I have. <laughs> <laughs> I've got about 31 school days left until, until summer break. Because you gave us the countdown the last few times. I know. So I've, I've got four days left till the next break. That's what I know. There you go. That's all I've got. Our intro music is Please Listen Carefully by Jazar. It's licensed under an attribution and share alike license. Our bump music is the County Fair Rock, copyright of John Deku at soundcloud.com slash dirtdogmusic. And our closing music is the Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod. It's licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. Oh, uh, in the immortal words of our favorite person, Janice Wright, in the storm of life, be a willow because the oak will uh, split and break. The willow will bend and return to form. For Michael McLeod and Michelle Wintering, I'm Matt Hot saying so long, everybody. Bye. Bye.
This has been an Exceptional Podcast Network production. Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at SpeechSciencePC and like our page on Facebook. For more original podcasts, please visit ExceptionalEd.com and rate and subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts.